Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, the book of Revelation chapter 4. Before we completely exit from the uh, Revelation letters addressed to the seven believing congregations in, in Asia, I want to make a couple of remarks because whatever it is that you have taken from these lessons, I would, I would like you to retain what I'm about to say. Now hopefully what you have observed is that when we can set aside our various Christian denominational doctrines that most of us have been immersed into a goodly part of our lives. Doctrines that behave as information filters <laughs> and as litmus tests for readers, for listeners. When we can do that, we get a surprisingly different and a much more complete picture of what John is saying. For example, one of the common alternate names for the book of Revelation is the Apocalypse of John. Some Christian expositors say that this is a misnomer because in truth the Revelation is not John's, it's Christ's Revelation. That seems right. Until we read the very first words of chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation that say, this is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua, the Messiah, so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon, and he communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yochanan, John. It doesn't matter which Bible version you consult. They all say essentially the same thing. And indeed, this was not John's revelation, but neither was it Christ's. Rather, it is that God gave the vision to Christ, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who gives it to us. Therefore, when we accept this as written, we learn at least two things. First is that there is a hierarchy of authority in the Godhead with the Son being subservient to the Father. Second is that when Christ ascended into heaven and God appointed him as ruler over God's kingdom, the Father did not retire. He didn't exit the scene and just leave everything to Yeshua the Father will continue to be active. He will be involved, including in the end times. And further, in most any commentary you might consult on Revelation, the author will say that the divine narrator of those seven letters is Jesus. And yet, he is never mentioned even once by name in any of those letters. Instead, each letter opens with merely a description or a characterization of the divine narrator that invariably includes some characteristics that in hindsight we can rather easily identify as that of the Messiah. But yet we also get additional characteristics that have always been traditionally, scripturally reserved for the Father. For reasons I can't fathom, most otherwise excellent Bible commentators have little hesitation in transferring those father characteristics listed to Christ. When such a thing has no precedence in the previous books of the New Testament, and while being provided with a name would sure clear up the mystery, of the identity of this divine being who's front and center in John's first recorded vision regarding the seven churches, the fact is that commentators declaring the divine narrator to be Christ simply exposes the rather bad habit of reading things into scripture that simply aren't there. Even though such a method may uphold 
certain personal doctrinal beliefs, it does not reflect what's actually written. So while I cannot deny the possibility, even the likelihood, that the narrator of the seven letters is Yeshua, John's book to this point leaves us hanging. It does not definitively tell us that. In fact, John's words combined with the prophecy of Zechariah 14 very clearly state that Yehovah the Father is also coming at the end of the days. Even setting foot on the Mount of Olives whereby the mountain splits. Something that makes for a mind-numbing mystery when we take it literally. As it should be taken literally since there is no good reason to see that these statements are, are symbolism or allegory. It is my opinion that perhaps, perhaps, what is being revealed to us by God in these seven letters is an inscrutable, even closer unity between Father and Son as a result of Yeshua's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. A unity greater even than what existed while Christ was on earth. A unity in which the Father and Son characteristics and perhaps substance, which up to now have separately identifiable attributes, eventually becomes indistinguishable. A unity of the divine persons of the Godhead that progresses really in much the same way that the kingdom of God progresses from a little more, an, uh, more than an ideal since the day John the, John the Baptist announced the kingdom was here until its physical reality at the entry into the millennium and then at its fullest reality upon the end of the millennium when the old heavens and earth, meaning the cosmos in its entirety, passes away. Then those elements are melted uh, down, they're recreated in a manner in which spiritual heaven and physical earth seem to meld into one. Can you imagine that? Whereby there is no longer a barrier between these, these two dimensions of heaven and earth like it is now in our era. I can't say that what I speak of is a certainty. <laughs> Probably it's really much more in the realm of an idea maybe uh, not fully formed thought, so don't pick it apart too much. However, my point is not to explain what happens after the millennium. Rather, it is to say that these seven letters reveal that in a mysterious way, even the Godhead has some kind of transition towards an inexplicable and greater kind of unity because as we're told... In Revelation 3.12, even God will have a new name. Revelation 3.12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no, go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. My new name. Now I use the King James Version here because language scholars say that this passage is the best, most accurate translation from the Greek when you use the King James Version for this one. And what we learn is that at a certain time known only to the Father, everything will become new and different. Believers will be new, so we get a new name. Jerusalem will be new. So the city gets a new name. Even God himself dons a new name. When wrestling with all this, we need to remember to take the term name as primarily meaning a set of attributes or reputation. Only secondarily as meaning a formal name. Or better, 
the new formal name describes a set of attributes or reputation. Therefore, as we venture into the next recorded vision given to us in John chapter 4, let us remain true to the text, not read into it what is not there, nor ignore what is there on a rational, intellectual level in light of our vantage point in redemption history, when, when there is so much prophecy yet to be filled, fulfilled, we need to just make a mental note of what it is we discover, but also allow that which is mystery to remain as such until God reveals the answers. So open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1536. 1536. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read it all. After these things I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice, like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking with me before, said, Come up here. I will show you what must happen after these things. Instantly I was in the Spirit. And there before me in heaven stood a throne. And on the throne someone was sitting. The one sitting there gleamed like diamonds and rubies and, and a rainbow shining like emerald encircled his throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And on the thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothing wearing gold crowns on their heads. Now from the throne came forth lightnings, voices, thunderings, and before the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now in the center... Around the throne were four living beings covered with eyes in front and behind. And the first living being was like a lion. The second living being was like an ox. The third living being had a face that looked human. And the fourth living being was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living beings had six wings and was covered with eyes inside and out, day and night. They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who was, who is, and who is coming. And whenever the living beings give glory, honor, and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever and worship him. They throw their crowns in front of the throne and say, You are worthy, Adonai Eloheinu, to have glory, honor, and power because you created all things. Yes, because of your will they were created and they came into being. This chapter begins with the words, after these things. Now we're going to find John using this phrase a number of times when he introduces another in his series of visions. Now there's great disagreement among Bible scholars as to how to understand it, how to understand this. Okay. See, it is that does after these things mean, like in our case, what comes next in chronological order after the things of the vision of chapters 1 through 3 happen? Or does it mean that the vision itself is simply the next vision in the series of visions that John received, but the contents of the vision don't necessarily occur and the order of the uh, of the several visions, just like they were in the order they were recorded. So what I mean by that is the contents of this vision of chapter four could happen 
before what happens in chapters 1 through 3 or later than what happens in the next vision that comes after the one we just read here in chapter 4. Even more, does the sequence of events contained within each of these visions happen precisely in the order that it's given? So depending on your answer to all these questions, that will largely determine your doctrine about how to understand the book of Revelation. For example, those called futurists or dispensationalists, and by the way, this general category of believers' doctrine is most typical of what we call the evangelical churches today, <coughs> they believe that, generally speaking, we should take everything John says in the precise order that it's given in the book. And while I can't get into all the nuances that this stance necessarily creates, when you read Revelation, it means to this particular category of believers that verse 1 of chapter 4 is speaking about the pre-tribulation rapture in which believers are removed from the earth. In other words, John talked about a door in heaven. So a door in heaven is opened, a trumpet is blown, and God speaks the words, come up here to his earthly believers, and the rapture happens. Of course, if this is the case, then it would seem that the body of Messiah would no longer be present from the time of the events of Revelation chapter 4 until the events of chapter 19, or perhaps even until the end of the book. And so it would also mean that from this point forward, everyone who comes to faith after Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, is seen by God as in a different category of believer than those who were raptured away, and therefore they would not be counted as among the traditional body of Christ. Now the arguments and the counter-arguments to this are lengthy and they're complicated and we're not going to get deep into it. The point is, your doctrinal choice about how to understand the order of John's visions and the sequence of their content is going to necessarily predetermine how to interpret much of what John says here from here forward. It's going to put you in a box inside which there's almost no, no wiggle room. I find this mindset and approach to studying and interpreting Revelation unnecessarily rigid and limiting. And, if I was a little bit cynical, I might wonder if this strict doctrinal approach is little more than a way to intentionally create doctrinal disparities that allows for the establishment of a different denomination with its own separate ideology and leadership. So here's the thing. We'll not make a decision on this issue for now. We will continue to read the Revelation with an open mind. We're going to take it for what it says and the order it says it. Thus this necessarily means I hope you're following along with me and looking at your Bibles. Verse 1 can only be referring to an invitation of God to John. And not allegorically as an extension, an invitation to the entire body of Christ. Because this is what it says. I think that's what it means in its plainest sense. God says, John, come up here. The door to heaven being opened. Look, it was much more literal to John and to the Jews of his day than it is to us. See, for centuries, the Hebrews pictured a divide between heaven and earth that is called the firmament. So there had to be 
some kind of a doorway to gain access between the two. Back in Genesis, we are reminded of Jacob's vision in which he envisioned a stairway or a ladder that went between heaven and earth. And through this, this entryway, beings from each of the two dimensions could, under certain conditions, travel from one place to the other. Therefore, since God communicates to us, his worshipers, within the circumstances and within the cultures in which we live, naturally, the vision to the Jewish John would include a doorway into heaven as his means of access. So John speaks of the voice he heard bidding him to come up here as the same as that first voice that sounded like a trumpet. Now this might be referring back to Revelation 1, 10 through 12. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see who was speaking with me, and when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs. So both the command to come up here and the sound of the voice as being like that of a trumpet reminds us of when Moses was at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning, and a thick cloud on the mountain. Then a shofar blast shout sounded so loudly that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moshe brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood near the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke because Adonai descended onto it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain shook violently. And as the sound of the shofar, a trumpet, grew louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with a voice and Adonai came down onto Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and then Adonai called Moshe to the top of the mountain and Moshe went up. Now while one could reasonably say well John was remembering from the Holy Scriptures that, that, that Mount Sinai scene and he borrowed from it. Instead I choose to see it as a repeating God pattern of how the Lord deals with his prophets. How he ushers some into getting a glimpse of the spiritual world. Well, verse 2 begins, Immediately I was in the Spirit. This verse is also thought by futurists and dispensationalists to refer to the rapture experience. However, I see a couple of important bits of information that would beg to differ with the rapture idea on a couple of different levels. First of all, this directly refers to John. It's not referring to anybody else. Second, if we assume, as dispensationalists do, that the sequential order of vision and context is maintained throughout Revelation, then we have to ask why if John was already in the Spirit in chapter 1, he was said again to be immediately he went into the Spirit to begin chapter 4. Because back in 1.10 we read, I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see on a scroll, send to the seven messianic communities, so on and so forth. Now it's certainly possible some time passed between the first and second visions or that the first and second visions are in no way connected sequentially. It's hard to know. But more fund fundamentally, what did it mean for John when he said, in the Spirit? What does that mean? He was in the Spirit. Some translators capitalize Spirit, big S, Spirit indicating 
It's a proper name. Thus pointing to the Holy Spirit. Others leave spirit in the lower case, little s. Spirit, meaning spirit in a more general sense, indicating something supernatural. That is, John didn't go to heaven physically, but rather in some other ethereal way. Now I think the matter gets cleared up a little when we notice that bad habit of English Bible translators once again surface. They will sometimes translate according to predetermined doctrinal beliefs, I think sometimes just subconsciously. And not necessarily according to what the Greek actually says. In our case, the Greek definite article, that is the word the, T-H-E, the, it doesn't appear before the, before the word spirit. So the phrase actually reads in spirit, not in the spirit. Big difference. In spirit means something out of body and, and, and supernatural, but otherwise just kind of undefined. While in the spirit refers to a supernatural being or an entity of some sort. So I think we'll just stick with the original Greek and understand that John entered into some type of ecstatic spiritual state but there's no direct connection with the Holy Spirit that's being suggested here. Now Ezekiel actually makes a similar claim as being in the spirit or in spirit when he is shown the new Jerusalem. But it is not at all evident that a translation from one kind of a body into another has occurred to Ezekiel or to John as is the general Christian viewpoint of what happens to believers in the rapture experience. So John has not experienced or is not experiencing a rapture in this verse any more than did Ezekiel. And there doesn't seem to be any reasonable connection between verses 1 and 2 to the general rapture of all believers. It's obviously yet to come because guess what? We're here. Now in this vision, once John is transported in spirit, not in the spirit, in spirit through this cosmic doorway into heaven, he immediately sees a throne and he sees the one who is sitting on it. This is an obvious allusion to the vision of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, as I watched, thrones were set in place. The ancient one took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. So John is seeing what Daniel was seeing. Or at least it's exactly the same setting. Now please note, the one, capitalized O, the one, which is short for ancient one, is God the Father. Not God the Son, it's God the Father we're talking about here. Then to begin verse 3, we read about the Father's appearance as similar to Jasper and Carnelian, also, by the way, Carnelian is also known as, as, a, as Sardius. And I also want you to know, by the way, that the complete Jewish Bible, for some reason, incorrectly uses the terms diamonds and rubies. I have no idea where that came from. All right, but there it is. It's just not a good translation at all. all right? And then we're told there's this rainbow around God's throne that has the appearance of emerald. I cannot stress enough that while we commonly refer to John's era and to the era of Christ and all the apostles 
as the New Testament era. That is a misleading characterization. Because that is certainly not how any of the New Testament writers would have thought of it. There was no such thing as a New Testament yet. None was being contemplated. So calling that time the New Testament era is another anachronism that's sloppily used in our day and then it, it creates this false mental impression in us. For Jews living in that era, they would think of themselves as still living in what we would call the Old Testament era since it is the first and only a testament that existed at that time. Thus as regards their religion and their national expectations, they look to the Old Testament and to the prophets. And here in this verse we're going to see this unexpected connection to John's vision and the Torah. The jasper, the carnelian, the emerald that are mentioned are selected for a very critical reason. They are explicitly representative of three tribes of Israel and those exact stones are present on the high priest's breastplate. And this is found, by the way, in Exodus chapter 28. Now, as you might recall, each of the twelve tribes was assigned a certain precious or semi-precious stone to represent that tribe. And each of those stones was arranged in four rows of three and then was fastened to the high priest's special breastplate. It's fascinating that Jasper and Carnelian are the last stone and the first stone on the breastplate, respectively. Jasper represents the youngest son of Jacob, which is Benjamin, and Carnelian, the eldest, it's Reuben. And in whose presence are these stones? in John's vision, in the presence of the first and the last, the God of creation. But then it gets even better. The rainbow around God's throne is said to be the color of emerald. Emerald is the fourth stone on the high priest's breastplate. And what tribe does that represent? Judah. And who's the most famous person ever to come from the tribe of Judah? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. And also notice this, now it's something we've talked about before. Carnelian and Jasper representing the first and the last of the twelve tribes forms a common literary vehicle in Hebrew grammar called merism. Merism. Used throughout the Bible. A merism is when you have a group of things, but it's represented by speaking only about the first thing and the last thing in the group. I mean, the idea is that it's just a shortcut from mentioning every single thing in that whole group. For instance, in English, we might say everything from A to Z. We don't just mean items A and Z. We mean A, Z, everything in between. That's merism. So by saying that God himself had the appearance of what? Jasper and Carnelian, which is an obvious reference to the stones on the high priest's breastplate, obvious if you studied the Torah, then it is a definite reference to the twelve tribes of Israel that is somehow manifested in the very appearance of the one sitting on the throne. Add to that the emerald color of the rainbow. Remember, the rainbow is a reminder of God's mercy that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. And the emerald 
just so happens to be the stone representing the tribe of Judah, Christ's tribe, and we see the unmistakable symbolic connections between God, Christ as the Lion of Judah, and the twelve tribes of Israel in John's vision. It's no coincidence. Now moving on to verse 4. The symbolism involving Israel just continues. Next we're told that seated around the throne of the Father was what? 24 elders. 24 elders sitting on their own thrones, clothed in white garments and wearing crowns. Now white garments always symbolize in the Bible ritual purity. The crowns are symbolic of those who have been admitted into the kingdom of heaven. And sitting on thrones is because we're explicitly told believers will be given crowns and the authority to rule alongside King Yeshua in the kingdom. And such symbolism of crowns for the righteous is not even a Christian innovation. Not at all. It was already a well-established and accepted <clears throat> principle with Judaism. In the Talmud, Berachot uh, 17a, we read this in the Olam Haba, that's the world to come. The righteous sit with their crowns upon their head and feast on the Shekhinah, the Shekinah. But what about the 24 elders? Who are they? What do they represent? Why 24 of them? Well, there are some various reasonable thoughts on this, but I think the answer is clear if one can get beyond standard Christian doctrine that thinks only in terms of Gentiles. One line of thought is that the number 24 represents 2 times 12. And the number 12 was seen as a divine number and therefore included a, it included a measure of perfection, represents a special kind of completion as concerns redemption. Another thought is the 24 elders are the 12 tribal leaders of Israel plus the 12 apostles. And then there's several other scenarios about what that number means, 24 is. However, when we understand the symbolism of what just preceded this verse, the symbolism of the jasper, the carnelian, and the emerald in this previous verse as representing attributes of Israel, then we must look to the same regarding the 24 sitting on the thrones. And during the times when, when the temple stood, there were established 24 courses of priests and Levites to serve at the temple. And this organizational structure continued until the destruction of the first temple by Babylon. It was reestablished with the reconstruction of the temple and then it continued until the Roman destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. Each course was two weeks in duration. So every priest and Levite served two weeks per year at the temple and the rest of the time they lived the lives of common folk knowing exactly when they would serve for how long they would serve allowed them to farm and raise, raise livestock grow grapes, ply a trade etc. all the rest of the time so they could support their families I have no doubt that while these 24 elders in John's vision are believers and also could be saved Levites and priests at the least they are believers who serve God in the same manner as did the Levites and priests as their thrones are arranged around God's throne but the next in verse 5 we read of John witnessing lightning, voices, thunder emitting from God's throne. Where have we heard all this before? Although I've already quoted it today, I'm going to repeat it. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there was lightning, thunder, a thick cloud on the mountain. 
Then a shofar blast, a trumpet blast, sounded so loudly all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the mountain out, uh, brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood at the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke because Adonai descended onto it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain shook violently, and at the sound of the shofar, it grew louder and louder. Moses spoke. God answered him in a voice. So the Hebrew motif of Israel's past and present just continues in John's vision. Thunder, lightning, voices, these are all standard biblical phenomena associated with a theophany, an appearance of God. Along with the thunder, lightning, and voices were seven fiery torches that represent the seven spirits of God. Now if you recall from Revelation chapter 1, we had similar symbols. But they represented different things. There, the seven fiery torches or lamps represented the seven believing congregations in Asia. Here, they represent what is called the seven spirits of God. Now in our introduction to Revelation, I asked you to watch for an avalanche of sevens that we were going to see throughout the book. And since seven is the ideal number, it's the number of divine completion and perfection, and especially to be noticed in this case, also a divine number of finality. It is fitting that in the book of the Bible that deals with the finality of human history and redemption that we see all these sevens. Thus while there are other possibilities, I agree, I believe the seven spirits spoken of in verse 5 represents the complete work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's my take on it. Now as the vision continues to unfurl, John saw something like a glass sea of crystal. Now look, the wording here is really important. It is not, as it is in most Bibles, a sea of glass. That is not what it says. You look at the Greek, it says it's a glass sea. A glass sea. And this glass sea, we're told, has the look of crystal. Now there's been many attempts to understand the symbolism of this verse up to and including that in ancient Israel's history the Canaanite god of the sea was Yom. And not coincidentally the Hebrew word for sea is Yom. So some Bible scholars think this passage is somehow invoking the pagan god of the sea before the Lord. Honestly, even though some pretty smart modern Bible scholars think this is a real possibility, I find that absurd. Not only are the Jews of John's day centuries and centuries removed from the era of dealing with Canaanites and their, their, their pagan god system, but for God to use a pagan god symbol under his holy throne? That didn't make any sense to me. However, I think the reason that there is so much trouble trying to decipher this mention of a glass sea is once again due to the lack of Torah knowledge. In Solomon's era, a large brass laver of water for ritual washing purposes was set in the temple area for priests to use. It was known as the Molten Sea. It was huge. It was like an elaborate above-ground swimming pool. And what do we find before God in his heavenly temple next to his throne? Something called a glass sea. And who was present around his throne? 24 priests and Levites. Who were those who used the sea for ritual purification? So let me sum this up for you. If we go back to the symbolic elements used in the Torah 
for service to God than every symbol we find so far in John's vision of Revelation 4, they just all reappear in God's temple in heaven. All of them. Now with no offense intended, this is not something that the Christian church can comprehend. And in fact, it doesn't want to hear it. Because according to most denominational doctrines, Gentile Christians are now God's people and the Jews have been rejected. All the promises and blessings in the Bible that are for Israel, ah, that all belongs to the church now. So any Jewish or Hebrew symbols in the New Testament, let alone in heaven, that we find in the book of Revelation, that's not welcome. And yet John's vision of heaven and of believers in heaven and of God in heaven, it's only understandable in the context of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the temple, and the Levite priesthood. Take that out, it doesn't make any sense at all. But wait, there's more. Verses 6, 7, and 8 now speak of four living creatures who were in the middle of the throne and around God's throne, we're told. Each one had a separate and distinct identity. The first one resembled a lion, the second one an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth an eagle. I just love talking about this stuff. I'm going to draw heavily on a lesson I put together years ago to explain the significance of all these strange creatures. Nothing in the Bible stands alone. It's all connected. To demonstrate this, you just have to listen to Ezekiel 1.10. Now Ezekiel was a prophet that lived about 700 years after the time of Moses and about that same amount of time before the Apostle John wrote Revelation. The vision Ezekiel had and the first chapter of his book begins with a view of heaven and of God's throne area, just like we're talking about here in John's vision. And it speaks about, guess what? Four living creatures. And these living creatures had wings and four faces. Ezekiel 1, verse 10. As for the appearance of their faces, they had human faces in front. Each of the four had a lion's face on the right, a bull's face on the left, and each of the four had an eagle's face towards the rear. Please note that a bull and an ox are just interchangeable symbols. And we're told that Wherever the Spirit of God went, these four living beings went. Well, in the time of the Exodus, the placement of the twelve tribes around the wilderness tabernacle had tremendous prophetic symbolism. It had great meaning. And it denoted a, a, a tribal pecking order. See, as with the priest's breastplate, the twelve tribes were divided up into four groups of three tribes. Each three-tribe group was assigned a specific and permanent side of the tabernacle on which they were to camp. And it was given according to compass directions. Each of the three tribe groups had a dominant leader tribe so that there were four leader tribes in all. Reuben, Dan, Judah, and Ephraim. Those were the four leader tribes. Each of the four dominant leader tribes had a specific symbol. And, it, it, and it was, there was an actual emblem of that placed upon a banner. And they were all known by this. In fact, all twelve tribes had one. We all know what the symbol of Judah is. It's the lion. We even call Christ the lion of the tribe of Judah. So 
The tribe of Ephraim's symbol was a male calf, or better, a bull, sometimes shown as a male ox. Dan's symbol is a little more of a mystery, as is the tribe itself, frankly. At times it was a snake, at other times a flying snake. More traditionally, it was an eagle. Reuben's symbol was a man, a human. So the four dominant leader tribes of Israel, which represented all 12 tribes, each had a symbol. One was a lion, one was an eagle, one was a bull, and the last was a man. And these tribes surrounded what? God's earthly dwelling place, God's throne on earth, the wilderness tabernacle. They protected the sanctuary of God from outsiders and the Lord protected them from their enemies. And what about those four living creatures of John's vision in heaven? The faces of a lion, an eagle, a bull, and a man. Now, where did we just see those same symbols? You got it. Those were the representative symbols of the four dominant tribes of Israel. Coincidence? Hardly. See, the connections between the earthly, physical Israel and the heavenly throne room of God are unmistakable. Provided we don't insist on allegorizing them away or just ignoring it altogether. These strange creatures were said to have six wings and they were full of eyes. This is probably an allusion to Isaiah's vision from Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1. In the, in the year of King Uziel's death, I saw Adonai sitting on a high lofty throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood over him. Each with six wings, two for covering his face, two for covering his feet, two for flying. They were crying out to each other, more holy than the holiest holiness is Adonai Sevaot, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Now while John doesn't give these creatures a name, Isaiah does. He calls them seraphim. And we also see Isaiah speak about how these beings constantly extolled God's holiness. Thus among Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John we get a combined picture of these guardian spirit beings that surround God's throne in heaven. And that the creatures were full of eyes. This indicates that they see everything. They know everything. Nothing escapes their gaze. They never pause in their watchfulness over God himself or over God's creation. But they also never pause in their praise and worship of God. And neither should we. We will finish up chapter 4 next time and get well into chapter 5.